We now want to turn our attention to God's Word, and uh, this morning we're starting kind of a new sermon series. We finished up our study in the book of Hebrews, and uh, over the summer we usually do something that's just a little bit different. In the past we've been through the Psalms, or one year we did the Sermon on the Mount, and this year uh, we're doing something a little bit differently, and uh, we're entitling this our Greatest Hits series. So uh, here's, our, here's our new banner for it. Um, there's probably some of you in here who don't even know what that is a picture of, right? Does anybody's vehicle still have a cassette deck in it? Yes, yes, I got a few. I still, I still in my, uh, my old 2000 Tundra, I still have the deck with the cord coming out of it that you can plug your, your iPhone into or whatever, so still, still rocking that. But uh, um, th- over the summer, um, we, we recognize that people are traveling and there's, there's a lot of kind of disconnection, discontinuity around things. We also use it as a great opportunity to, uh, to, to share the pulpit with other men and invite different individuals to come up and be able to, be able to share God's Word. And so uh, this year, uh, we're, we're doing something a little differently and letting each speaker be able to pick the text that they want to preach from. And so as we label this our greatest hits, uh, we just want to be clear that we are under no illusions that these are going to be the best sermons you have ever heard. Um, we're not pre-labeling this as, as the best sermons. But uh, this is uh, a reference to the, the texts that are going to underlie these, these sermons over the coming weeks. These are favorite passages of sorts that, uh, that, we, that we've found especially meaningful to us, maybe through a certain season of life or just for whatever reason they have stood out to us. And so we've had the opportunity just to be able to pick a text for us to be able to come and expound together. Our normal practice of preaching is really just to preach through books of the Bible. And so uh, towards the end of the summer, we're going to do a brief little uh, four-week series on kind of our core values of our, of our life groups and of, as our church. And then we're before, uh, this, this, as the school year starts, we'll, we'll jump into the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. But over the next number eight weeks or so, we're going to be walking through kind of uh, standalone sermons on different passages of Scripture um, that uh, each speaker has been able to kind of choose and select for themselves. And so we recognize that uh, just like your favorite songs, you know, it's subjective whether these are actually favorites. So that, uh, just as Aaron loves him some Justin Bieber and uh, Daniel is, is fascinated and obsessed with uh, Nickelback, you know, it's, it's, up, it's up to them, you know, it's, up, it's, it's, it's subjective. So... Um, <laughs> Aaron will tell you all about him. So, anyway, <laughs> just just setting you up, bud. Just setting you up. So, um, well, for me, favorites are favorites are really hard to pick. I actually hate the question. What's your What's your favorite such and such? Like, unless we're talking about like my football team or my wife, like I don't have a whole lot of like favorites I can determine. It kind of depends on the on the day. So uh, um, just, just, you know, in different seasons of life, there are passages of Scripture that have, that have been meaningful to me, um, that, have, that God has used in, in specific ways. But, I mean, we're talking about the Bible, so there's, there's a lot of good stuff there, right? And so uh, for me, I just wrestled through trying to, trying to find, you know, and, and, and choose a text. And so I landed on uh, a story that uh, today we're going to look at in Mark chapter 10. All of the Synoptic Gospels record this story. Uh, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And so I'd invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to the gospel according to Mark in uh, chapter 10. And we're going to read this story, a story that for me has just stood out as just such a meaningful way that Jesus interacts with this man. And so I, I hope that we can just look into this and see Jesus' heart for this man and also help us to see and understand the true nature of discipleship. So I invite you to stand uh, with me as we give attention to the reading of God's Word in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, 
a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray together. Father, we gather together as your people, invited into your presence because of the priestly work of Jesus on our behalf, because he always intercedes for us, we can draw near to your throne. So we come and we seek your face today, we recognize our need of you, we recognize our condition as lost and hopeless apart from you reaching down to us. And as we look out into a world this morning that is, is hurting, it's a lot of grief, it's a lot of frustrations, sadness and sorrow, a world that's been marked by violence and fighting and just, just, just senseless acts. We see a world that is searching for answers, longing to know how to fix it. Wondering if we just have the right policies, if we just have the right laws, then maybe we can, we can stop this. I just pray that you would allow your church to faithfully proclaim the only message of salvation that this world needs. That the ultimate problem is the condition of the human heart. I pray that you would allow your church to be a city on a hill, to be a light that is not hidden under a basket, but is, but is on full display for the world to see. I pray that we would be a redeemed, a renewed community, willing to give everything to follow you and to lift up the glorious message of Jesus to a lost and a dying world. I pray that you would guide us as we look into this passage, 
for me is somewhat of a favorite text. Let these truths wash over us anew, be reminded of the true cost of discipleship and what you have invited us to take hold of. We love you, Father. We commit this morning into your hands. It's for your glory and for your name that we pray. Amen. Have a seat. There's a man named Kyle McDonald. Anybody heard of him? Probably not. Well, anyway, he kind of became uh, famous for, for a brief while back in 2005 because he had this crazy idea, and he was able to trade a paperclip for a house. Have you heard of it? Heard of this at all? Yeah. Well, he didn't, he didn't actually trade a paperclip directly for a house, but through a series of 14 trades or something, he was able to work his way up and trade a paperclip for something else, for something else, for something else, and eventually all the way up to the point where he traded what he got for a house. It's a pretty good deal, right? I think any of us would take that in a heartbeat, especially if you're, you've been trying to maybe buy a house in this market and, and, and struggling with that. If you could just trade a paperclip for a house, that, that'd be a great deal, Right? Well, in order to get to where he had this house eventually, what he had to do along the way was just simply give up something of lesser value for something of much greater value. And the man in our story that we just read about had the opportunity for a trade that would have given him infinite wealth, and yet we see that he passes up on it. He passes up because he couldn't part with his paperclip. Now I realize that the man here has, has much more than a paperclip, but when compared with what Jesus is offering him, that's really all he had. So I want to walk through this famous story, a well-known story to many of us, and, I, and I've just kind of broken it down into four movements. I don't have you know, clear points, but just kind of four movements through this passage. We're going to see the question, we're going to see the response, we're going to see the revealing, and then ultimately the lesson. So I want to start and look at, at the question in verse 17. And this story takes place as Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem, here in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And he's about to set out and continue his journey, and he's approached by this man. And this is, this is one who has been traditionally labeled as the rich young ruler. In our account here in Mark, he, he is merely described as a man. Quite literally in the original, a certain one comes up to Jesus. And we're eventually told that he is one who, who has great possessions. But uh, as I said before, all three uh, synoptic gospels record this story. So in Matthew 19, we have a little bit more information. We are told that this is a young man. And then when we look at Luke 18, he is described as a ruler. So putting all three accounts together, we have this man who is young, he is some kind of ruler in Jewish society, and he is wealthy. What we also know about him from this story is that he is very religious. He is outwardly morally successful. And it's this young man who approaches Jesus, one whom he's likely heard about and, and possibly even heard his teachings live there as Jesus has been visiting his area. And he is deeply, you know, taken in by Jesus. He, he has great respect for him, as, as we see. And before Jesus leaves town, he has a question, a burning question that he must ask him. And so, he urgently, as it says, he runs up to Jesus. 
and he kneels down before him, showing his respect and reverence for him. And he addresses Jesus, saying, Good teacher. In some ways, it appears that he's almost buttering him up a little bit, putting this title on him. And he he then asks Jesus this question. And I think it's a question that really ultimately has plagued humanity. And the question is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, this man has been successful in all areas of his life, right? He's still in his youth, likely in his early 20s. He's in the prime of his, his life. He's established himself with a high social standing, a, a ruler, likely a reference to a, a Jewish religious and political position. So he holds a position of power and influence. And most of all, he is wealthy. He's already attained what in our time we would label as the American dream. So for him, I don't know if there was a Judean dream, but if there was, he's reached it. He's even surpassed it. His life is is successful in all accounts. But he wants to sure up this one other area. He wants to know how he can have eternal life, access into heaven, into God's kingdom. And surely if he just knows the secret... If he knows how to do it, then he can accomplish that as well. And in some sense, don't you love the man's sincerity? He doesn't seem to be joking with Jesus. He seems to be honest. He's like, just just tell me what I am supposed to do to be entitled to receive eternal life. But his question is fundamentally flawed, as we'll see. You see, he doesn't just simply ask, hey, how can I be saved, but rather... He says, ultimately, what can he do that will put God in a place where he owes him something? He wants Jesus to tell him how to earn or maybe how to buy or or what he can do for God so that God will be indebted to him. Like I said, I think this question haunts humanity. I think we all struggle with this default belief that says if you hope to gain God's favor, then you have to perform. So we say, where's the list? What do I need to do? Let's get after it. And I think there's, there's so many who identify themselves as Christians who spend their lives trying to earn God's salvation. Sure, maybe, maybe we need the cross and the, the, you know, all that atonement stuff. Yeah, 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 we, we kind of need that, but, 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 but I get that only because I've earned it. Because I've done enough for it, so God owes it to me. Or else there's a lot of other Christians who, who wander around struggling in desperation and fear, hoping that they've done enough. Why do we do this? I think the reason is that sometimes a simple transaction feels more secure. Kind of like buying a car. If you just give them the right amount of money, then you, you get a vehicle. And we feel more secure in our works because then we can say to God, hey, hey, look what I did for you. We can hold it over His head and say, now you owe me something. And our assurance is rooted in what we've done, and we feel like maybe that's a little more secure than just trusting God. And I think if we're honest, that's how we approach so many of our other relationships as an exchange of, I did this for you, so you do this for me. And I think then we oftentimes bring that into how we view our relationship with God. 
And for us, if we're honest, the phrase may not be, be posed in a question just like this man did. We may not say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But we might say something like, what must I do to gain God's approval or the approval of those around me that I respect? We might say, what must I do to feel secure in life? What must I do to establish my value and my worth? What must I do to feel loved? What must I do to be freed from, you name it, your past, your current burden or struggle? Maybe we say just, what must I do to be happy? And where this man started was correct. He came to the right person to ask this question. He came to Jesus seeking the answer. For all those questions that we long for, Jesus does provide the answer for us, but it's not often found in the way that we expect through what we can do, as we'll soon see. Which leads us to the second movement here, the response. We see Jesus' response to this man, and as he so often does, his response is not what we expect. He first starts out by addressing the way that the man has labeled him, him, has labeled Jesus. He says, why do you call me good? He says, no one is good except for God. And the man's words here that, that, that he uses to designate Jesus as good is, is a unique phrase in Jewish literature. This isn't a common way that anybody would refer to another man or even a rabbi. So this is somewhat unique which is why I think Jesus even takes the time to address it. And some have struggled here, and even this verse has sometimes been twisted to, to say that Jesus here is denying his own sinless nature. But we have to realize that Jesus is not making a statement about his own character here, but rather he is challenging this man's perception of what it means to be good, of what he conceives of, of as goodness. He says, okay, you, you've come to me and you, you see me as this great teacher, and because of that, you simply casually label me as good. He says, let's be clear about this. There is only one who is good, and that's God. So be careful what you, what and who you think are as good. And this really is the man's fundamental issue, right? He thinks that he is good as well. And this ultimately, I think, is a fundamental problem of our world. And I think generally a lot of people think, well, people are mostly good. You know, sure, we, we make mistakes and there, there's some bad apples out there, but generally, you know, humanity is, is good. And, and if we just can put the right laws in place or, you know, help people amidst the, the baggage that, from where they came from, then we can, we can help and then the goodness of humanity will overcome and it will ultimately, you know, win out. And I think that's, that's the, 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 the struggle of so much of our world, but Jesus is pressing in to question even this man's own understanding of his own goodness. And so what does he say? Jesus says to him, you're a Jew. You know the law. You're familiar with it. What does the, the Ten Commandments say? And he offers him a brief summary of the latter half of the Ten Commandments. It says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. And he includes this command of not defrauding, which is probably a reference in some sense to the, the commandments against covetousness and all that, that leads to. And, and finally, honor your father and mother. So Jesus says, you know the rules. Moses wrote them down long ago. You have the list. How are you doing with that? And the man's response here is actually incredibly surprising. 
Like, think, how, how would you answer that question? How are you doing upholding the Ten Commandments? Well, with Jesus' list, you might say, well, uh, murder and adultery in the technical sense, I guess I haven't done that, and stealing, I'm mostly good, apart from my cousin's Netflix password that I borrow, um, I'm, I'm good there, lying, I haven't really told any big lies recently, but if you start spreading it, getting out into the whole of the Ten Commandments that Jesus likely is pointing this man to, I think if we're honest, even the most self-deceived of us would probably say, yeah, I've, I've fallen short on a few of these. Haven't quite measured up. But this guy, with what appears all sincerity, says, yeah, all those commandments, I've kept those since I was a boy. Likely a reference to his coming of age at 13 years old. So since then, I have been a, a law keeper. I have upheld all the, all the commandments. Maybe there's a sense where maybe if he's fallen, he's also, you know, uh, you know gone through all the sacrificial system and done it all, and he's, he's upheld it in, in every way that he can. And so in his mind, he has succeeded. He is good. He has a clear conscience. It's kind of amazing, his response here. And so, from his perspective, he's kept the law, which tells you that this man was deeply religious and incredibly disciplined. He sees himself as good, but, but maybe he just needs to kind of add something else to his life. Maybe he's missing just something else, and he wants to make sure of that. But Jesus is going to show him that the path to life and what it means to follow Jesus is not just something you add on to your life, but it is a complete deconstruction of who you are and a surrendering of everything that you think that your identity is found in, and it may require a significant change. So here's the response, which takes us then to the revealing in verses 21 and 22. And as I, as, I, as I read up to this point, I, I expect Jesus to maybe confront this guy at a, at a deeper level. I kind of expect Jesus to maybe, you know, start preaching to him the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like say, hey, oh, you think you've kept the law, but did you know that the law actually goes deeper? That it it's actually goes down to your heart issues. That if you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. If you've, if you've hated your, your brother, then you've actually committed murder and kind of be like, see, you actually haven't fulfilled the law. I got gotcha. you. Like, like, I kind of expect Jesus to approach him like that, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he takes a, a different approach. And in doing so, he puts his finger right on the center of this man's idolatry. This idolatry that's been buried under a life of outward morality, success, and perceived goodness. And I've always been struck and moved by what it says in verse 21. It says this, after this man has said to, has said to Jesus, I've kept the whole law, I'm good. It says this, it says, and Jesus looked at him. Now, our translations don't really, I think, communicate the full extent of this word that is used here. But the word here really means to, to look at something directly and intently, to gaze upon it, to stare deeply at it. There's a sense of, of Jesus here taking a longing moment to look this man directly in the eyes, and in this moment, it's as if he sees into his very heart, to his very soul. 
then what else does it say? It says, and he loved him. He looks at this man, he knows him fully, and he loves him. Which means that the next words that Jesus presents to him come from a place of deep love and compassion for him. And thus, as he looks at him and lovingly sees him, he tells him this. He says, you lack one thing. He says, go, sell everything that you have, give it away to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now, if you just read this for the first time, you may think that Jesus just told this guy how he can go earn his salvation. Right? Like, sell your stuff, give it away to the poor, and there you go. That's the last work that you need to kind of get across the finish line and and, and get to heaven. It kind of sounds like that at first. But Jesus is not telling this man that the, the way to heaven is merely by having a yard sale and donating the proceeds to charity. No, in a very personal way with this man, he is revealing his true heart. See, underneath all of his successes, underneath all of his outward righteousness, and all of his avoidance of the big sins, underneath all of that is his white-knuckled grip on his wealth. And we see this revealed in verse 22 with this man's immediate response. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't offer him something else. It says simply this, disheartened. Saddened, almost appalled that Jesus would ask this, grieved, he turns and walks away from Jesus. And Mark tells us why. It was because he had great possessions. In Luke's account, it says he was extremely rich. His true heart is revealed, and His ultimate Lord is identified. And the thing that Jesus calls Him to lay down is the one thing that He will never give up. And thus, it is the thing that keeps Him from following Jesus and ultimately receiving the thing that He was seeking. He was unwilling to give up His earthly treasure to gain a heavenly one. He passed on the house to keep His paperclip. What we have to recognize is that this story isn't merely about a lesson on money, but this is Jesus teaching His disciples and us about the true nature of discipleship. See, this man wanted something from Jesus, but he didn't want to be a disciple of Jesus. He wanted to hold on to his own identity, his own uh, view of the good life. He wanted to retain his own source of ultimate satisfaction And just try to add something else to that. But Jesus, out of a deep love for him, invites him to a better way, and he refuses. His heart has not been drawn to Jesus, but rather to a life that he thought Jesus might help him attain. And this man, who is often labeled the rich young ruler, as Beck helped me, uh, as we discussed this this week, he helped me to see this rich young ruler is actually revealed to be a poor old slave. 
He has worldly riches, he has moral wealth, but he is spiritually bankrupt. And he was a ruler in this world, but he was a slave to his own idols. And all of his acts and all of his life has merely just been an outward display of religiosity. A few years ago, uh, some friends of ours um, invited us to go uh, cut down a fresh Christmas tree. So we thought we had never done that before. We usually just went to Home Depot or whatever. And so we're like, that'd be fun. Get out there and have the authentic Christmas experience. And so uh, they had found this place down in, uh, uh, outside of Boulder somewhere. And so uh, we, uh, we, we joined them and, and headed down there. And uh, we were expecting to find some you know, nice forested area or some you know, nice quaint you know, tree farm of some sort. And as we're, as we're trying to find this place, we're just driving around in this like farmland area and just like the, all these fields, I don't know, they were like hay fields or something. And we're like, man, what, where are the Christmas trees going to be around here? Finally, we, we, we get to the address and here in the middle of a field is, is a tree farm. So we're like, okay, this is kind of odd, but uh, we'll, we'll go check it out and I guess, I guess get a tree. So we went there and they had real trees, but as we began to like walk around in the field, the, the, the field there and where the trees looked like they were in the ground, we realized this isn't what we thought it was. And basically, these were pre-cut trees that this place had just dug some holes and just kind of stuck them in the ground around in this field. And then you can go and you can go and cut them down. Um, and so, well, you know, my family, we, we tried to be like, okay, let's try not to make it look like this is super lame, but, you know, I guess we'll, we'll still buy an $80 tree out of this field, I guess. So anyway, we got our trees, we came back, and you know, we laugh about it now. But uh, as I reflect on on that whole scene of, of, of finding those trees, I think the reality is that there's, there's a lot of people who think of themselves as Christians, whose lives are like that field. It's actually dedicated to something totally else, totally different, to grow in hay or some other crop. And yet, kind of taking some trees of religiosity, of religion, of church attendance and Bible studies and, you know, giving and serving at a soup kitchen, and we've kind of just taken those and kind of planted them in the ground of the field of our life. And uh, from all appearances, it looks like there's, there's trees there in the ground. The reality is they're not, they're not growing in, in, in living trees born out of a life that is dedicated for that purpose, to that thing. They merely are things that have been just kind of implanted in there to give the appearance of religion, of faithfulness to Jesus, of Christianity. And this is what this whole man's life really is revealed to be. His life's dedicated to his riches, to his status, to who, who he has created himself to be, and he just wants to maybe add a little, little Jesus to it. And Jesus, in, in, in a loving way, will not let him continue to live in that way, but invites him to understand what it means to truly follow him. And I think that Jesus is wanting to do that same revealing in us. Like He sees you too. He looks at you. He sees deeply into your heart. He knows you in your deepest being. And He loves you. And He invites you to follow Him. The question is, are you willing to give up whatever you are clinging on to in order to follow Him? So you could fool everyone else around you, you could pretend and you can perform in here, 
but Jesus looks on you and He knows you and He understands the things that truly have captivated your heart. And for some in here, it may be money like this man. But the wealth in this story is just an example of so many things that we cling to that keep us from fully surrendering everything and our affections to Jesus. And the reality is Jesus does not ask us to give things up to deprive us of pleasure or anything. But out of His love, He pleads with us to abandon anything that stands in the way of our relationship with Him. Which leads us to the conclusion of this story and the lesson that he shares with his disciples in verses 22 to 31. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples are stunned, they're shocked at what they've just seen and heard, and they, they don't even say anything at first. And so Jesus says again, Children, how difficult it will be to enter the kingdom of God. And he says, in, in, in fact, let me give you an illustration. It, it, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Now, many have tried to find an, an explanation for, for Jesus' rather abs, absurd illustration here. Like, did Jesus really refer to a, a camel and a, and a sewing needle, or is there something else? And so some have said, well, Maybe the word for camel was originally rope, because in, in the Greek they're, they're sort of similar. Um, but the textual evidence for that is, is, is virtually non-existent. Um, others have said, well, maybe the eye, a needle's eye is, is not a sewing needle, but it's a, a, a gate through the city of Jerusalem, and like a small gate inside of a larger gate. And uh, camels have to kind of get down on their knees to kind of go through there. Um, Interesting story, but really there's, 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 there's not good historical evidence for a gate like that ever existing, and uh, it was kind of a, an, an idea that was introduced centuries later. I believe that Jesus actually meant for his illustration to come across like it does, rather, rather silly, rather absurd, namely, as he says later, an impossible thing. There's no way you're going to get a big old camel through a little tiny hole at the end of a needle. It's impossible. And he says that's easier than a rich person getting into the kingdom. And it's the absurdity of this illustration that leaves the disciples shocked and, and, and wondering. And their reaction is warranted. Because for them, wealth was actually viewed as a, as a sign of God's blessing upon them. They saw this man who, if he had wealth, like, like he was blessed by God. So surely, like, like, he has opportunity to enter the kingdom. So, so if he's out, if he can't get in, then what hope do any of us have? It seems impossible and hopeless, they say. And Jesus affirms this. He says that's absolutely correct. With man, he says, this is impossible. Left to yourselves, it will not happen. And why is it impossible? It's impossible because we've all failed to uphold the law. We are all lawbreakers. As much as we may try to spin things and to minimize our guilt, there is only one who is truly good. As Paul will later write in Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. And even if through our efforts we can piece together what appears to be an upright life, 
at our very core is not just moral failure, but it's also gross idolatry. So Jesus wants them to learn this lesson, that that which you are unwilling to give up may in the end be the thing that keeps you from following Jesus. And we all cling to any number of things as ultimate and functional saviors and things that we hold on to because we believe and think that life actually depends on it. For this man, it was his wealth. And Scripture is filled with warnings against longing for wealth, against holding on to wealth, of of being rich, which we would do well to consider when you realize that merely to live in this country, this place that we're at, that puts us all in the very top tier of the wealthy throughout history. And why is money such a hindrance to faith? It's because it provides endless distractions for us. It provides an endless pursuit of whatever God you can imagine. Any source of joy and satisfaction, you can continue to just run after it if you have enough money. Just ask Solomon. After all of his pursuits, he realized it was nothing but chasing the wind. So for you, it may not be money per se, but maybe it is your career. Maybe it is the business you've been building. Maybe it's your hobbies, your travel, your adventures, your athletic achievements. Maybe it's how you look. It's your gadgets and toys. Maybe it is your family that you hold so dearly. Your close friends, your desire for acceptance and social standings. Or maybe it's just your comfortable middle-class life. Maybe it's not tangible things that are the idol of your heart, but maybe it is your own self-righteousness. It's your serving, your giving, your leadership, your church attendance, and your faithfulness. None of those things are bad. None of those things are are, are things that, that we should despise. But when good things become ultimate things, then they may be revealed in the end to be the camel that keeps us from passing through the eye of the needle. But Jesus here offers us hope. He says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It is only God through Christ who can lead the camel through the eye of the needle as we sing in that great song, To Christ the Ransomed Sinners Run. Though impossible to enter in, the hands of labor try The grace of Christ must pull them through the needle's narrow eye. Do you realize the miracle that is your salvation? That you have done nothing and can do nothing to earn entrance into the kingdom of God. But it is something that you have been miraculously invited into. But it is an invitation that calls us to give up all of our efforts and all of our idols in order to receive it. Peter here at the end of this story pipes up like he often does. you got to love Peter. He says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And what's he looking for? I think he's looking for Jesus to affirm him. Right? Because what, what, what did Peter do? Peter, Peter left his fishing boat. He left his job. He's, he's been running after him. Matthew left his tax collector's job and, and, and his status there. And all these, all these men following Jesus have given up everything to follow Jesus. So, so Peter's like, hey, We're good, right, Jesus? And what Jesus does is that he doesn't merely just affirm Peter in this, but instead he offers him a promise. 
He doesn't say, yeah, Peter, you, got, you guys are good. You guys are in. You guys have done enough. But instead, he reminds him of this promise where he says this. He says, truly, Peter, just remember this, that I promise you that there is no one who has left everything for me, whether it's your home, your family, your job, or anything, who will not receive a hundred times more all these things in this life and in the age to come will receive eternal life. Let's just be clear here. Jesus is not offering a prosperity gospel as though if they just give up a little bit, then they're going to get wealthy and, and healthy and everything that they need. The problem with the prosperity gospel, that, they, that God is just going to bless you with every imaginable kind of material good, is, is that it's, it's, it's too low of a bar for what Jesus is actually offering. He's offering something far greater. He says, whatever you give up for Jesus will be re- replaced with something better. You just have to realize that it may take on a different form. If you are ultimately called to leave your family to follow Jesus, guess what? He's going to provide to you an extended family, an even larger family, a community of believers to live life with who will live together as family. If you give up wealth and and riches for Him, then you will have treasure eternal in heaven. If you surrender your job or your, your, your place of living, then there will be a, a new home or a new rewarding work as you serve Him. Lest anyone thinks that this is just merely a financial investment plan, Jesus also slips in, also remember that to follow me will involve persecutions. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. There will be challenges. But in the end, the thing that this man sought and failed to receive is promised to those who are true followers of Jesus. They're promised eternal life. They're promised an eternal treasure that is Jesus Himself. And this story again reveals to us the inverted nature of God's kingdom. With this phrase, many who are first will be last but the last will be first. And it's a willingness to give up something for Jesus here that, that is not a work that we do to gain salvation, but it is a declaration of our faith and our allegiance to God and to His Son, Jesus. So I hope you realize that the application of this passage is not just give away all your money. Scripture nowhere calls us that that's the ultimate demand of every Christian. To have money is not a, not a bad thing. The, the call of this is not just to give away all, all your money. This isn't a plea for, for you to give more as we gave a financial update. That's not what this is about. But this is a story for us to remember the rich young ruler. To remember and recognize that our efforts towards goodness are not what God is looking for, but rather He wants our heart And for us to see Him as our ultimate treasure. And and to do that, we have to be willing to give up whatever else we have that stands in the way of that. So what might Jesus be asking you to give up so that you can fully and completely follow Him? There's a great legacy left to us by the missionary Jim Elliott. A man who uh, was called to the, the jungles of Ecuador and had just a passion and a desire to serve the, the remote tribes in Ecuador to bring them the gospel. And through all of his efforts, he eventually ended up giving his life 
And he was killed by those he loved so dearly who, who he longed to, to give the message of hope to. He was killed by these tribes as he was seeking to reach them. But Jim Elliot left us with a, with a line, a phrase that is so true. And Jim Elliot said this, you're probably familiar with it. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the rich young ruler reminds us that the opposite of that is true. That he is a fool who gives up what is eternal to hold on to what he cannot keep. So may we be a people who declare, as we sing so often, nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross we cling. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story, the story of this rich young man, whom you loved, who you, who you looked upon, who you, you knew, who you invited to give up everything for something far greater, to have the treasure that is your very self to follow you. And may we also be grieved when we, when we read the words that he walked away. And I pray that you would do a work in our, our hearts and our lives, that we would not be like him, that in grief, because the cost is too high, that we walk away. I pray that you would allow us the eyes to see that what you offer to us is gloriously more valuable. And I pray that we would do whatever it takes to surrender everything so that we can run after you. We love you. We thank you for the gift of our salvation, the impossible reality that sinners such as us in all of our unrighteousness could be brought near to you. And so we call out to you in hope. We call out to you in desperation again. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.